Aloha and welcome to Evidence and Answers. I'm Tony Solis, alongside with your ever-wonderful host, Mr. Pat Zucran. How are you doing, Pat? Hey, doing great, Tony, and we got a great show for you and a great guest. We're really excited about the person we're interviewing today. Yes, uh, Dr. Gary Habermas is with us, American Evangelical Christian apologist, historian, and philosopher of religion. He's a prolific author, lecturer, and debater on the topic of the resurrection of Jesus. But, Pat, why don't you introduce our guest? Gary Habermas is a good friend and also an excellent apologist. He's a professor of philosophy at Liberty University. And for those of us in the arena of apologetics, we all know this name, Gary Habermas, because we're all quoting him when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's done extensive work in this area, one of the top authorities, not only in this country, but throughout the world on the topic of the resurrection. So we're really excited to have him here. Uh, Dr. Habermas, welcome to the show. I need to say aloha, even though I'm a long way away from you. Great to have you at the Apologetics Conference, and we hope to have you back again. Well, you thank know, you, fellas. You know, Gary, you addressed a topic that was relevant to a lot of people, an issue that a lot of Christians struggle with, and often it's the reason why a lot of Christians end up turning away uh, from their faith in Jesus Christ, and it's the whole topic of the silence of God. Why is God silent when I need to hear from Him the most, Gary? Tell us a little bit uh, about this topic and why you felt the need to address this relevant topic here. Uh, I went through about 10 years of, of doubt, and mine went through the some of the traditional or not-so-traditional categories that I came to identify later as factual, emotional, and volitional. And I ended up doing a, uh, a couple of books on the subject, which, by the way, if I can throw a quick footnote in here, two of my three books on the subject are out of print, but they are available free of charge on my website, GaryHabermas.com. And so folks can go there and, and find a lot of material about doubt on the website. Like I said, it's free of charge. So this is the one you're talking about, Pat, is the third book on the subject that just came out. And the reason I did a whole book on silence is because it is probably the most common way that I hear the question termed today. We, we've all heard that phrase, how come it seems like my prayers don't get past the ceiling? Something like that. And uh, a lot of people just think that what they find about God in their own life is not the same as the experience of believers in Scripture. Gary, take us through that progression of a doubt that happens in a Christian's life when they encounter difficulty and it seems like God is not answering their prayer or speaking to them. And, you know, I've often wondered, too, the connection between that that you just described and what folks who study the disciplines call the dark night of the soul. I wonder how much of it is a, a time of discipline or instruction of the Lord, and how much of it is a self-induced, because I think a lot of it, I think the majority of it is self-induced kind of a situation that we put upon ourselves when God or our conception of God doesn't live up to what we think he should do. So it goes something like this. We have favorite passages in Scripture, and of course we memorize the ones that might make us feel the best. That's, that's pretty universal. And then when you're going through tough times, you say, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And look at this verse and this verse. And we often ignore the immediate context we often ignore the greater context, the book itself, or other books written by the same person, and uh, we just give kind of a one-sided view. Then secondly, besides the promises, we think that if we take this general assumption from the uh, scriptures, we think that God treated believers in both the Old and New Testament a certain way, and we don't see that kind of uh, path 
taken by the Lord today. We often say things like, well, didn't God sort of deliver people whenever they were going through difficulties? Well, how come he doesn't deliver us today? So I'd say those two things. What about my favorite verses? And what about the list of God's dealings with believers? Don't we see different activities that I'm experiencing in my everyday life? And I think it's these existential frustrations. How's that for a little phrase? Uh, existential frustrations, I think, frequently cause us to say there's a disconnect between what the Bible says God does and I should experience, and between between that and what I really do seem to experience in my everyday Christian life. Dr. Habermas, I was looking through your website, and by the way, it's a, a wonderful wonderful uh, resource for those of you listening and again you could log on to GaryHabermas.com and uh, there's a lot of questions in there that you answer uh, a lot of common questions and you know I was really going through it because uh, myself like many of our listeners today they experience a lot of problems now here's one of them that I'd like to bring to light Um, it seems most of the times guys ask me you know what does God how come he doesn't just pour out judgment on the unjust today. It seems as though the unjust profit more today than those that are followers of Christ. Now, do you, do you hear that a lot? Oh, yes. You know, I, I almost never hear that, but it is very common to the book of Psalms, mm-hmm. because oh, there's other passages, but the book of Psalms in particular, you could maybe mm-hmm. think of Jesus' two disciples, James and John, who mm-hmm. called down, or asked Jesus why he doesn't call down judgment out of heaven. Um, you do see that a lot. The reason I was surprised to hear you say that is because this generation seems so much to be live and let live, non-judgmental, you know, kind of a the true offspring of the 60s, uh, make love, not war, you know. And so I, I don't hear that too much, but that definitely is part of this silent sort of thing. How come this guy over here gets a better treatment than I do? And he's not even following you. Right. Yeah, that's a key. That That's one of the uh, subcategories of silence. I, I have some kind of tight categories in a way. On the one hand, I would say pain and suffering. That's mm-hmm. very similar, right. and that's one category. I would say doubt questions, questions of is it true, or even yes, I know it's true, but where does my assurance come from? I think those are more traditional doubt questions. And then the silence ones, I think it could be any of the above, the things you describe or or any of these, but in the context of the person saying, I've tried and tried and prayed and prayed and worked and worked, and God just doesn't seem to be present to me. And then this phrase always comes up, like he was in biblical times. They Mm -hmm. just see a real mismatch between what Christians experience today and what they would expect to experience from Scripture. So I think it's that loneliness that I want to say see Jesus' face, I want to touch him. You know, this just popped into my mind. Just last week I did a couple of interviews, or I did an interview to go on a couple of uh, stations for the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation. They wanted to talk about why Narnia is so popular in the U.S. as opposed to what they see in Great Britain. And I told them that I think that that that's one side of this little issue here on silence. Uh, C.S. Lewis said that when when he answered letters, uh, like children and others, they wanted to know, were they doing something wrong if they fell in love with Aslan? And, and, you know, you might think, well, that's a little bit far from this topic, but one of the reasons people were falling in love with Aslan, apparently, is that they could relate to the idea of somebody coming up to them in this real world, and the, the gals 
grabbing him by the fur and be able to hang on to him. I, I think that's part of that, Lord, I'm here alone in my room, and I'm praying, and I'm praying hard, and this is this is difficult work, and if I could just experience your presence, if I could just uh, grab you, hug you, uh, boy, they got to do it in the New Testament, why can't we? I think that's all part of that larger issue of, uh, in a way, we're fulfilling God's the longing that God placed in us, but at the same time, Christians want more of him now, and I think I think it was Pat's earlier comment. I think some of this can become very serious because people can cite evidences till they're blue in the face, but if they see a disjunct between what the Bible says their experience should be and how their experience is, then they think, well, you can have your evidences. I won't dispute your evidences. I'm just growing cold here in my relationship with the Lord because I'm not having this existential need met. And I think with that, I mean, that, that's really getting to the heart of uh, what I try to address in this book. Yes, you know, Gary, um, a passage that comes to mind that I often hear Christians quote is that James 5 passage, you know. Exactly. Where it says, anyone amongst you suffering, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful, let him sing praise. Anyone among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And then it says in verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And Christians look at that and say, well, that didn't happen. You know, I prayed for years and my wife left me. My husband left me. I prayed for years and uh, my husband's suffering with cancer. My child's suffering with the d disease. God didn't heal them. They died. Right. Uh, right. How do you respond to... That's the point I mentioned earlier when I said we love these so-called favorite verses, but we generally ignore either the uh, same context or the same book in which the author writes. I had a person ask me that question one time, Pat, and they were quite distraught because they had just had a death in the family. And uh, they said, I only want to know one thing, is James 5 in your Bible? And that's the way they said it. They knew I knew James 5, and so they just said it that briefly. It was kind of a stunning question. Is James 5 in your Bible? And I said, well, let me answer you with the question. Is James 1 in your Bible? And, I, and all I heard was the other person saying, oh, my, like that. And it took them a minute to express what they were thinking, but it was exactly what I hoped they would express, and it went something like this. I don't know what James 5 means inside and outside. If you read the commentaries, it's a very difficult passage, and James does say will. He will heal. And so someone might say, yeah, it's a difficult passage because God doesn't do it. I said, wait a minute. Whatever James 5 means, whatever James 5 means, you have to have it be consistent with James 1. I doubt that James, even writing as a human being, would be so forgetful as to know just what he said a short time earlier. And in James 1, he just starts the book by saying, you're going through problems right now. Hey, that's good, because God lets you go through these things to work out patience in your life, and patience will lead to a host of other disciplines, and you'll be a more mature Christian. Now, how do I put, tough it out, go through my problems and grow, with God will step into your life and heal every problem? So something's got to be wrong with my interpretation, but my point is, I can't just triumphantly quote James 5, what I think James 5 means, and ignore what James means in James 1. One other brief example, three of these favorite passages that we often cite, uh, do this and I'll answer your prayer, do this and I'll answer your prayer, and do this and I'll answer your prayer. 
three times, John 14 through 16. There's a great verses, but right in the exact same context, we have the Lord saying three other times, just verses away from each other, you're going to have problems in this life. People are going to try to kill you. They're going to take your lives. And I could see some of his followers going, whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought you just said if I pray for this, it's, it's going to happen this way. And it doesn't. So we, we memorize the three verses we love. We ignore the three verses that are really tough. And so when people come to me and they say, uh, why don't I, you know, why don't I get the same experience those disciples had? I'd like to have been there, like the example of the little girls grabbing Aslan by the mane in Narnia. I'd love that. How would you like to be those disciples shaking hands with Jesus and eating and sleeping and drinking with him and just being there? And I'll say, yeah. How do you think they felt when they were beheaded? Mm. How do you think they felt when they were crucified? Uh, how do they feel when they were repeatedly whipped and beaten? So I, I think so many times, fellows, we see one side of the picture, and we cite it, we quote it, we memorize it, we remember it, because it's very nice and it makes us feel very good. But we're not doing counsel, we're not doing justice to the full counsel of Scripture here. In fact, we're not even doing justice to the immediate context. You know, Gary, you seem to be pointing to a big void in American theology, American Christian theology. You know, as I travel the world and a lot of people who are suffering in different countries, one of the things I ask them is, what is the difference you see between Christianity here in Africa or in Asia, where I may be, and Christianity in the United States? And they said, you know, one of the things they keep, I keep hearing is they say, well, you Americans don't have a good theology or understanding of suffering. Exactly. Pat, I had the same experience. This happened to me when I came to uh, Liberty University to teach. I was in a broader context than I'd been in other schools, and so I was exposed to many third world and other people because of the large uh, and various and uh, student body here. And I remember a young lady saying to me once something just like that, and she said, uh, you guys in the West deny it, but you kind of have kind of a push-button God, and if you pray and you don't get an answer to prayer like you get a fast-food hamburger, you get a little upset. And she said, now, now again, she said, you, know, you guys deny it's like this, but it really is. She said, in my country growing up, we have a totally different view of God's actions in the world. She, you know, for just one example, she said, you guys uh, in America, you have at most two or three children, and that's enough to carry on your family name and share fellowship and so on. But in my country, we might have 10 or 12 children. And why do we? We have 10 or 12 children. We bury half of them, as a statistic I read recently in some places. We bury half of them, and the other half of them become their parents' life insurance policy and take care of their parents when they're older. Our, our family structure is based on death and those who survive and taking care of one another. And yet we don't see that as different in Scripture. We see the same kind of mentality in Scripture, and we for the life of us, we can't understand what you folks are getting at in the West. And that made me really, that was one of the turning points for me in this whole discussion that became this book, because I thought, well, what, what's the right model? Does the New Testament, does the Old Testament actually claim that God will always take us from difficulties? If so, what about the cross? If so, what about the martyrdom of virtually every or most or all of Jesus' disciples? What about the martyrdom of the Old Testament prophets? Um, the list goes on and on. That's not the general experience we see. 
So I've come to uh, to work on that a little bit, Pat. I've actually come up with my my kind of my own interpretation of this, but I've tried to to be a little closer to what the New Testament says instead of this much more superficial thing I've described as memorizing and claiming our favorite verses and ignoring the verses we don't like. Yeah, so Gary, you know, one of the things you're saying is we need a more complete theology that includes suffering, and that is in our suffering, you know, God has not abandoned us, but he's continuing to work through our times of trials and suffering. Exactly, exactly. That, that's a conclusion I came up with at the end of the, the book. I ask what kind of conclusions can we draw, and one of the central conclusions I draw is that uh, many times God will take us from suffering. He does spare our lives. He does touch us. Uh, there are testimonies around, and increasingly so, of Christians who see, or at least report, very miraculous things. I, I don't think that's God's modus operandi. I don't think that's the normal, everyday way he works. After all, if miracles were more common than everyday events, they wouldn't be miracles. But I do start the book out with two chapters. One sort of supernatural things that God uh, does in the world, and then secondly, a chapter of personal things that God does, sort of like uh, what would it be like to have a letter with a heavenly postmark kind of a thing, something just for me. And I have a, a list of uh, both of those, because I do believe God is more active in the world today, perhaps more than ever before. But I think one of the keys is to not to expect miraculous activity or a personal touch uh, 24-7, but rather to see his hand in circumstances as he is with us through things, rather than always expecting and uh, that he will take us from them. I mean, I think too often that latter, almost like you must take us from this, you said you would, uh, that that's just one side of the picture and just doesn't allow for the other side where God can hold our hand through the suffering. And I think that is a very biblical picture of uh, suffering and of our topic for today, uh, God's silence. Yeah, Gary, you know, let me give you an example. You know, there's one woman who I've been speaking with for several years, and her theology goes like this. You know, my oldest son was suddenly killed in a car accident. You know, he was innocent. He wasn't doing anything wrong. He was serving the Lord. He loved God. And if God is loving, God is sovereign, he could have prevented that accident. But he didn't. Therefore, God must be mad at me, or God is not listening to me, or, or is there a God? Well, I, I would try to point out that there is a, a disconnect between what happened, which is, you know, pretty hard to deny, as much as these are black-white issues and not interpretations, because we often mix the two. But on the one hand, we have actual events. So-and-so was serving God to the best of our ability to understand that, and so-and-so died, the same person. It doesn't follow the rest of your statement there. Therefore, maybe God's angry at me. Therefore, God may be done working through me. That doesn't follow at all. I mean, we have to, over and over again, the Scripture tells us to examine our lives, examine ourselves. I mean, it could be that we have fallen out of fellowship with the Lord. But many, many times in the New Testament, if we were to conclude, for example, that every time somebody was martyred, every time somebody was beaten, every time somebody was persecuted, every time a family member died, that therefore God doesn't like what I'm doing, doesn't appreciate my ministry, that that would be something that would be largely foreign to what we see in the New Testament. I mean, the, the chief example of suffering in the whole Bible, certainly in the New Testament, is the cross of uh, Jesus Christ. 
and the idea that suffering means God is opposed, God is angry, God is going to strike out at us, is exactly the opposite of the message, not only that God has regarding his son, but the extension of that message of his son to those he loves. Say the uh, prayer in John 17 where Jesus says, by the way, that's one of those hold your hand passages. Right after those three passages, pro and three passages, con in John 14 through 16, Jesus says in verse 17, uh, chapter 17, I don't pray that you take the believers out of the world, my followers. I don't pray that you take them out of the world. I pray that you preserve them in the world, that you preserve them from the evil one. So uh, things happening to us are not necessarily at all a sign that God's done with us or doesn't like us or is angry with us. It could simply be a sign that uh, we're one of the hot spots because we're trying to follow the Lord. We're doing precisely what he wants, and he told us this was going to happen. Yes, you know, Gary, uh, the answers are very deep kind of answers, these superficial answers that we Christians tend to give. You know, before God can greatly use a man, he must break a man. So, man, God is really going to use you. Those kinds of superficial answers really don't improve the situation, does it? I mean, it really takes a deep, well-thought, theological, biblical kind of answer to address these issues. And that's one of the things I appreciate about what you're saying here. Pat, I know this is true in your life, too. Sometimes, and, and I, boy before the Lord, I am not saying I have arrived or I have any deeper insights than other people. But you are right that sometimes going through experiences will teach us. Um, many people know my story largely because my good friend Lee Strobel has told it. And I, I got county recently, uh, and as nearly as I can tell, he's told my story in about 10 million pieces of literature. But uh, in 1995, my my wife died of, of stomach cancer, and I'm remarried, but that was a very, very deep time for my wife and I. We had four children at home, and four children were still there when she passed away in the uh, summer of 1995. And I, every once in a while, I will, I will have my uh, devotions and my quiet time with the Lord in the same Bible that I was reading in those days. And I'll come across a particular psalm, one of those how long, O oh Lord, Psalms, and I scribbled the date by it, May 1995. And as I see that in my Bible, I think, oh my, that was just just three months before she died of cancer. And I must have been asking the question, how long, O oh Lord, will you cast me off, will you forget me? And those were tough, tough times for me. And, and you know, Pat, when, when we had our uh the funeral i stood up hardest thing easily that i ever did in my life i said a few words her favorite text psalm 91 and psalm 91 ends like this with long life will i satisfy him and show him my salvation with long life will i satisfy him that was my wife's favorite chapter and here she was lying in the casket just a few feet in front of me as I spoke, and she was only 43 years old. Now, I guess what I'm getting at is sometimes the deepest waters can only be waded through when we decide that we're going to sit there and maybe in a way, dare I say, not let go of God until, you know, I get my answer. People can go different ways when they go through hardship. And some say, that's it, I'm out of here. And some say, 
no. In my case, because I, I put so much on evidences, I would tend to say, no, 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 I cannot explain these evidences the way as I wrote to a fellow just this morning. I said, the older I get, as time goes on, the more convicted I am that Christianity is true. Well, then I want to ask this question. If Christianity is true, then what do I say about my particular experience? But let, it's got to be a given that Christianity is true, given what I know about the evidence. So I want to know existentially why what I'm expecting or what I experience is not what I think I'm going to see. And that is one of the main reasons the death of my wife in 95, uh, 15 years ago, that is one of the main reasons that I jumped in with both feet into this, this topic myself. I think we have to be real careful of kind of pasting our own interpretation of events and know what must be in God's mind. To me, it's a much more solid thing that Christianity is true. I love the passage in Scripture, let God be God and all men be liars. I, I also love the text many times in the Bible that says the God of all the world must do rightly or the God of the world must be fair. Um, things will work out. And it's not just blind faith in, the, in, in light of the suffering. I looked at those verses and find out that they, they clearly weren't teaching what I said. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that we will live on a cloud and never have an issue and nobody will touch us. Uh, that is, if we take it in the context of the book and the passage and uh, the greater context of Scripture. Doctor will be joining us next week again as we continue with evidence and answers. And uh, again, you can log on to uh, Dr. Gary's website at GaryHabermas.com. It's a great resource for all of you. And again, his book, Why Is God Ignoring Me? We're going to continue next week. EvidenceAndAnswers.com. You can also log on there as well to get more information on what you heard today. So we'll see you guys next week from uh, Tony Solis along with Pat Zuccaran. We wish you a fond aloha.